Welcome to Untold Stories, a production of the Florida Theater and WJCT Public Media. Tonight's program was recorded August 6, 2022. The theme, Fish Out of Water. We're going to start with, we're bringing back Michael Jordan, okay? Isn't he so talented? Um, and you probably could tell that he's really a storyteller as well. And this next piece that he's going to do for you is Dale the Whale. And it is a story, a whale of a story. So please welcome Michael Jordan. Yes, it's a whale of a tale. This is about a big blue whale, the largest blue whale who's ever swam the earth. And he has a hard go of things. He doesn't uh, make friends easily. And um, He's pretty lonely being the biggest blue whale. He goes shopping and he knocks things off the shelves and he has to buy them. He's so enormous, sometimes people think that he's a building or, or something other than a whale. So this is the story of how Dale the Whale comes to love himself. I'm a big blue whale, got a big blue tail. I'm a big blue whale, got a great big blue tail for all of you. I'm Dale, the loneliest whale. In the sea. Once I played with the dolphins, jumping so high. Once I tried to play with the dolphins, jumping ever so high. I, when I left, I came down on a part of 25. They don't want to play with me. They said I'm too blubbering, blundering. Well, I'm so in the way. Guess I'll go away. I'm Dale, the loneliest whale, even though I try. Ostracized for being oversized. I'm 
So after my debacle with the bottlenose dolphins, I thought I would go to the coral store. Reaching for a pirate eye, I slipped and fell and my tail hit a wall of crystal balls. Lord, I broke them all. I'm strewn about the floor. Well, I slipped and fell some more and brought down the whole store. Now, Mr. Blowfish said I gotta pay for all of this. I can't come back no more. Now I got a compass that don't work. Yenna, giant pearl cracked in half. Yenna, flattened ancient ring. Yenna, squashed cowboy hat. I'm Dale, the loneliest whale. And I sigh. <sighs> Monstrous size for being supersized. Well, a turtle with a purple shell, he told me good and well where to find someone as large as me. Said she lives in the depths, if you can see. So I drifted deep into the dark until I felt her lovely arms wrap around me. I said a friend finally. Love was not her game, nor to eat me was her aim. So I had to slip away. And it was a giant squid. Took a bite of my fin. Now I'm swimming for my life. And I'm really growing tired of being Dale, the loneliest whale, and I cry. I'm ostracized for being monster-sized. So I thought I would abandon looking for a friend. I'd put it on the shelf. Now I'll just consult myself.
After traveling here and there And all the while solitaire My mind became clear And my ears began to hear A tiny little chorus Singing day We are here I looked around pondering What in the wandering sea could it be? Am I crazy? In the light that sparkled, I could see a thousand barnacles were holding on to me. They want to talk to me. They love it when I bridge. They tell me funny jokes and introduce me to their folks. Now I'm Dale, the happiest whale, and I smile. My friends are with me all the while. I'm Dale, the happiest whale, because I know that in my heart is where my best friend calls his home. Some say it's commensal. I say it's mutual because they keep me company. Now I'm satisfied with being my size. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So our first storyteller for our second half is someone who I actually met through a good friend of mine, um, Nicole Samuels. Uh, that's her. Uh, that's his wife, and um, it's great when you have friends that marry neat people rather than they marry someone that you really don't like. <laughs> and oh well. Um, so uh, Arson is a hip-hop artist. He is well-known um, in Jacksonville and beyond. And um, he also uh, dabbles in, um, I, 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 I know I'm gonna get this wrong because, and I've been on his website, you need to go to his website. B-L-A-K-I-E-Y-E. Okay, B-L-A-K-E-Y-E. Go to Arson Fist's website. And he ha does these things with action figures. So cool, very interesting. Um, so I want you all to welcome Arson Fist. Thank you so much. Uh, greetings, greetings. I'm gonna take everybody back to June 2019. Found myself in the emergency room, Flagler Hospital. After going through a few days of some upper back pain and some abdominal pain, went through a series of tests, did some blood work, did an EKG, even did a couple MRIs. The shift doctor, at that time, could physically see the pain that I was in. 
but none of the tests were lining up. So he asked me, would I take one more MRI, but this time with some contrast? Of course I'm going to say yes. So while I'm sitting there with my wife, Nicole, who was my rock, my anchor, my better half, and ultimately my best friend, shift doctor comes back and says, hey, we got to bring down an oncologist because we don't like what we see in the scans. And what they ended up showing us was that every lymph node in my body was enlarged and swollen. At this time, we went ahead and met Dr. Trika. He was the oncologist they called, came right down. Very humble, reserved man. But every step that he took in that emergency room floor, you felt his presence. He then proceeds to tell us that I won't be leaving the emergency room that night. Instead, they were going to admit me upstairs for further testing. So we settle into the room, we're able to go to sleep. And that morning when I wake up, I get prepped for my first biopsy. Now, I never had this procedure before, didn't know what it entailed, but I knew at that time, it was a step towards figuring out what was going on with me. So I have the biopsy, come back to the room, having a conversation with Nicole. Then all of a sudden, we get a visit from an infectious disease doctor. Nicole looks at him and says, hey, do you have any news on my husband's condition? The doctor says, yeah, your husband has cancer, and then leaves. I remember that room having a curtain in the middle. There was another family on the other side. And like yesterday, I can hear it. Oh my God, so sorry about that news. We're even more sorry in the way that it was delivered. See, that doctor just left abruptly. There was no follow-up, no consoling. It was just the stench of that word, cancer and I could feel the air leaving me. But at the same token, in the same breath, I looked at Nicole and said, that cancer is not going to be the end of me. I ended up staying in the hospital for a week. We did another biopsy. Out of the two biopsies that were done, nothing was shown. Results were inconclusive. Before I got discharged, I got visited by a dear college friend who, at the time, I haven't seen in about 20 years. His name was Ian. Ian gifted me a book. This book is called Becoming Supernatural by Joe Dispenza. He then tells me that the pages within this book will provide me the tools to get my mind ready for the fight that I have to endure. So by the time I'm discharged and I'm home, my immediate family, Nicole's family, and all of our closest friends know what's going on. At the start of this, I was about 189 pounds. After my third and then ultimately my fourth biopsy, 
I had already lost 65 pounds. I was in really bad shape. I couldn't move on my own. I had a walker with the tennis balls at the bottom so I wouldn't wake people up when I'm squeaking through the hallway. Couldn't take a shower on my own. Couldn't even open the refrigerator door. This was also the time I found out that a very close friend of mine, a brother by the name of Peyton Locke, was also diagnosed with cancer. I remember that phone call, which ended up being our last conversation. He told me, Arson, I'm not going to fight this. I'm not going to seek any experimental treatment. I'm not even going to seek a second opinion. I am ready to let this take me. But, Arson, you, you're going to beat this. You're going to still be here. You will be able to carry on creatively and push out those music projects that we started together. What do I say to that? In my mind, I know I'm about to lose a very dear friend. But I had to suppress that grief and get my mind ready for the fight that I had to endure. I was completely a fish out of water. And typically, when a fish leaves water, it dies. But then I remembered some of the pages from Joe Dispenza's book, and it talked about creating that visual picture in your mind of you actually getting rid of that ailment, pushing that disease up out of you, letting your body do what it was designed to do. Well, when we got the results of the fourth biopsy, our worst fears came true. My classification was stage four. I had a growth on my T9 vertebrae. I had lesions at the base of my spine. And I also had a growth in my abdominal area. Again, I knew that I wasn't going to let cancer take me. And at that time, with that given diagnosis of T-cell lymphoma, Dr. Trika tells me that the current chemo isn't very good. Very low rate of success and survivability. So this is that time when that darkness creeps in. And I start to question my own mortality. Would I even have the strength to see this through? A few days go by. Dr. Trika calls up again and says, hey, there's a brand new chemotherapy treatment designed specifically for T-cell lymphoma that's literally six months out of FDA testing and finally got approved. Sounds great, right? Well, had a hurdle to jump, and that hurdle was my insurance company. The first time we called, didn't go so well. We called again. Finally, we got that approval. Called Dr. Trika to tell him the news. He then outlines my treatment plan. He tells me, for six months, 
every 21 days, I'll be sitting in a chair for four hours, getting pumped full of chemicals, hoping to kill the cancer that's slowly killing me. I literally had to become supernatural. It was around my fourth cycle when I was sitting in Dr. Trika's office, and he's going over the charts, and he's in astonishment. We're like, what's going on? He said, we can't even see the lesions at the base of your spine. And every single growth or tumor in your body has already shrunk dramatically. But instead of celebrating prematurely, he tells me that I have to register myself on the stem cell donor list because that would be my only path to a true cure in getting rid of this cancer completely. Nicole and I look at each other, and it's, at this point, it's a no-brainer. Put my name on the registry list. And by the time that I hit that sixth cycle, not only was I in remission, I was 100% cancer-free. And on top of that, I had also secured a 100% donor match for my stem cell transplant. I couldn't believe it. Dr. Trika looks at me and says, you're a miracle. And I think at the time I was wearing an Incredible Hulk shirt where banners turning into the Hulk. And I was like, yeah, I'm, this is what I do. I'm a superhero. But I wasn't out of the woods yet. Dr. Trika places a referral to one of his colleagues, another oncologist in Jacksonville at Mayo Clinic. His name was Dr. Ayala. Dr. Ayala signed me up to have the stem cell procedure done. Now, by this time, we're looking at March 2020, literally the week before COVID lockdown hit. So I'm in the hospital, and Dr. Ayala tells me, hey, you're going to have to go through four days straight of some of the most intensive chemotherapy that you're going to ever witness. Because we got to kill every white blood cell in your body to get ready for the stem cell transplant. Now, when I tell you those four days were harder than my last six months, it's no exaggeration. I didn't think I was going to make it. But following Joe Dispenza, making my mind see that visual picture of all the chemicals that I'm injecting, getting rid of that cancer, getting that new lease on my life, I was able to survive the stem cell transplant. And by the time I got the results, after a few days of trials, tribulations, little hiccups here and there, Dr. Ayala tells me, your relapse chance went from double digits to single digits, and you're almost at 0%. If it wasn't for that courageous donor who showed strength 
and volunteered some of their stem cells to save my life, this fish would have never found his ocean again. But here I am, living, loving, and surviving. Thank you. is a true miracle. What a journey. Um, our next storyteller is just a fabulous woman who is very well known in the Jacksonville literary scene. Um, she's a UNF uh, professor in writing and um, I took my notes because I wanted to make sure that um, her first memoir, A Place of Peace in Crickets, How Adoption, Heartache, and Love Built a Family, is a story about love, kids, dogs, and chaos. Trisha Booker is just a very special lady. And so, um, please welcome Trisha. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm here with Buddy, my service dog. Buddy, can you lay down, please? Um, Buddy is, has been the only dependable male in my life um, for the past two years. It's been that way since my husband left me. He left the weekend that the pandemic began. And I remember being in our closet area, and he's packing his things, and we're kind of talking, but we're, you know, kind of not talking too, because I'm kind of in shock. And I'm watching him and I'm thinking, if he packs my CrossFit hoodie, I'm gonna f kill him. Because, <laughs> you know, it's bad enough that he's leaving, but then if he takes my CrossFit hoodie, that would just be the ultimate sin. Um, but he didn't, and he left, and I put my hoodie on, and I sat at the end of my bed, and I thought, wow, this is my life now. He moved to a studio apartment in Riverside, the uh, vibrant, culturally enriching, um, diverse neighborhood of Riverside. Uh, he left me in Ponte Vedra <laughs> with uh, three teenagers, three dogs, and a fish named Celine Dion. <laughs> and if you know Ponte Vedra, you know that it's a very wealthy community. It's a very beautiful place. Uh, they have amazing schools, which is why we moved there. Um, beautiful beaches, gorgeous landscaping. Our grass is literally greener than yours. <laughs> um, but it's also like not really me. I mean, it's a very conservative and a very uh, predictable neighborhood. It's a very safe place to live. There's an air of uniformity about it. If you live in a neighborhood in Ponte Vedra, you probably have a homeowners association that tells you what color you have to paint your house and what your lawn should look like. And if you make any changes at all to your house, you have to ask permission. Um, and I'm not really like that. I'm kind of messy. I'm a little bit of free-spirited and spontaneous. And uh, I like to do things different with my yard. I, I like to put signs in my yard that are not allowed. Um, and the Homeowners Association sends me letters and I take the signs down and then they forget about it. And I put the signs back up and we go back and forth. I actually got a letter from a woman one time calling me a PETA. 
I was like, a PETA? What is that? I had to Google it. It stands for pain in the ass. So um, I am a Panavidra PETA. So I'm living in Panavidra as a PETA, and I'm trying to do two really hard things. The first is that I'm trying to raise my children to be unabashedly themselves. I want them to be brave and unique, and I want them to feel free to express themselves the way they are and not the way they think they should be, right? Uh, they are children of color. My children were adopted. My oldest one I adopted from Vietnam, and the youngest two I adopted from Guatemala. And so as children of color, they're automatically kind of other because Panavitra is 97% white. My children, though, have been amazing. I think I've been fairly successful in telling them I want you to be you, no matter who you are. I am proud of you. I want you to be utterly yourself. My daughter is in college. My son and, and other daughter are both at Pontevedra High School. So my son is 17. Um, he is gay. He's a musical theater buff. He loves New York City and origami. And he is decorating his room right now in a boho aesthetic. He said, do you know what a boho means, mom? I'm like, oh yeah, I, we've invented boho. Um, but he, I love who he is, and I love that he's not afraid to be himself. My younger daughter is 15. She plays three instruments. She has described her style as a fairy goth. Um, I would describe it as like Lolita fairy goth. Um, I asked her one time, how come you don't get dress coded? honey, and she said, I don't know, and I said, I think maybe the teachers are afraid of you, and she said, they should be, and I was like, oh, okay. She's very into the supernatural, and she likes to redo tarot cards and crystals, and I have found bowls of salt under my threshold, and I don't know what that means, but it's okay with me. It doesn't bother me at all. The second really hard thing I'm doing is trying to figure out who I am. Because when you're married for 26 years, together for 30 years, and you lose that part of you, it's kind of like an amputation. I mean, I found myself very unbalanced. Um, I was unable to see who I am. Because when you have somebody to bounce yourself off of, you feel like, you feel secure in that. Like, okay, somebody gets who I am and appreciates that. And that person was gone. So I've got to figure out who I am again in this place that, again, values conformity. And it's a wealthy neighborhood, and you know wealth can buy you an extended period of beauty, right? And it's a certain standard of beauty, maybe a traditional standard of beauty. There's a lot of beauty in Pontevedra. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of Botox and a lot of filler and a lot of really cute clothes. And I'm kind of not like that. And I don't really begrudge people who are like that. It's just that it's not me. I mean, sometimes I might begrudge them a little bit just because, you know, like eyelid surgery wouldn't be terrible. But I, 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 I really, I don't, I don't, I don't really, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> I am just a little different. I don't wear a lot of makeup. I don't wear cute clothes. I thrift most of my clothes, actually. I have tattoos. I, um, I only shower outside because I have this amazing outdoor sh I'm a little bit feral, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> and I don't feel like I have a tribe around me in Panavidra who can look at me and say, you know, you're different, but, but you're okay. 
I told my, my kid's therapist, because I borrow my kid's therapist sometimes, I said, I feel, I feel hideous is what I feel like. I feel really just hideous. And it reminded me of when I was 12 years old and I switched schools from this small suburban parochial school to uh, an upper crust all-girls private Catholic school in uptown New Orleans. And I didn't know it was a snobby school, but it was. And we, wore, we had uniforms we wore, but one day a month we could wear regular clothes. So the first day I showed up wearing regular clothes, I was so excited I wore my favorite outfit, which was this yellow pantsuit. Um, it was a yellow cotton pantsuit with um, a big zebra applique right here and right here. See, now you know already that this is a terrible thing to wear to a school. I can tell because you're laughing. But I thought it was the most fabulous thing. I mean, I loved wildlife and I mean, anyway. So the first person to say something to me was Elizabeth Kubel. She said, I like your outfit. And I said, thank you very much because I thought she, but then I saw her sneering and I knew that she was making fun of me. It had been my favorite pantsuit, but I never wore it again. And we had to go shopping that weekend because I needed to buy all straight-legged pants and alligator shirts, Lacoste alligator shirts and topsiders because I wanted to be like everybody else because I wasn't brave enough to be myself. My friends say, you will find someone who appreciates who you are. And I've hopped on the dating apps for a quick minute here or there. Uh, it did not go well. Um, the first time I used as my profile picture, I, had, I was holding a chainsaw and I had this t-shirt that said, um, the t-shirt said smash the patriarchy. But I thought, you know, I just, thank you. <laughs> I wanted people to know who I was. You know, the therapist says, well, you know, maybe it's, if you are trying to sell a house, you just, you, in, you, you improve the curb appeal. So maybe you could just improve your curb appeal. But I just feel like that's so much trouble. I want people to see me for who I am. So I was utterly uninterested in the guy who, um, who tried to like me, who said he could lick his own eyebrow. And I didn't think that was a very marketable skill at all. <laughs> there was another guy, though, who said, What's your unforgivable thing in a relationship? What's unforgivable? And I thought, that's a really good question. I mean, not for him to ask, but for me to ask myself. And I thought, what is unforgivable for me? And I thought, well, narcissism, uncontrollable anger, racism, homophobia, uh, inability to love my kids, inability to love my dog. Um, I wrote all this to him, and then I, I, I should have written um, public toenail clipping, but I didn't write that. But I wrote all this and he deleted me immediately, um, which was okay because I deleted the app. And I thought, you know what? I am just now trying to figure out who I am. Why do I have to explain myself to somebody else when I can barely explain myself to myself? Well, thank you guys. I had, as a little girl, a pony. We had this cabin in the woods, and I used to love to ride this pony bareback through the woods. My dad had these trails that he had carved through the woods with his tractor, and I'd get up early in the morning, and I'd hop bareback on my pony, and I would ride singing, happy trails to you, because I envisioned myself being on the Roy Rogers show. And I was so utterly happy with my place in the world. I mean, I knew who I was. I knew where I was. I was like 
I, I don't care where I'm going. I can just be going to that next tree, but it's where I'm supposed to be, and I'm who I'm supposed to be. And it didn't matter what polyester abomination I was wearing, I looked great. I want to be like that now. I want to be able to live in Ponte Vedra and say, this is who I am. This is okay. I used to deep sea fish a lot with my dad. My dad was ever on a quest for the great blue marlin, and he caught several blue marlins. When you catch a blue marlin, a big blue marlin, like multi-hundred pounds, you get them on the boat. And as soon as they come through the transom, the first thing my dad would do, we used to call him Captain Safety. He was so afraid of someone getting hurt. But when a fish gets out of the water and it's on the boat, it starts thrashing, right? Because it's out of the water. And my dad was always terrified the fish would throw the hook. And so he had what we called a tuna stick. And he would take the fish by the bill and he would beat the head to stun it because he didn't want it to throw the hook. And something would happen to this fish. It would start glowing. It was like this beautiful, effervescent glow. It was just an amazing creature. It was phenomenal to see. So here's this beautiful creature, and you beat it. And it glows and glows and glows, and then it dies. But you don't have to do it that way. I caught a blue marlin once. It was only 200 pounds. We got it up to the boat, and we held it by the bill, and we took a picture, and we took the hook out because we were going to release it. And we released that fish back into the water. And it did not dive back into the ocean and swim with all the other fish. It started jumping and twirling. It tail walked. It was like, psh, 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 psh. It was amazing. And I think I can be like that fish. I can be in the water, and I can be who I am among all these other creatures that perhaps are not like me. But every once in a while, I can jump up out of the water and say, here I am. Thank you very much. Yeah. Buddy, come. Woo! Come on. Fabulous. Thank you. Come on, buddy. I love Buddy. That tail never stops wagging. The whole time, it's just like, I'm like oh, oh, okay, that's Buddy. Every. Um, oh, I'm, I, I know all these stories, and I'm, I'm just totally like, what is it? Keflemish? What? Verklempt. Verklempt. I'm not around enough Jewish friends. <laughs> I have to change that. Um, how many of you have gone to the Jacksonville Symphony? Well, it's a good chance that you have seen our next storyteller because um, Philip Pan was the concertmaster at the uh, Jacksonville Symphony for many, many years. And he is, <sighs> Philip is just one of the most kindest, generous, brilliant people I know. And I've known him now for a little while, and 
he's just a very, very um, special man. And I am really uh, been thrilled to work with him. And so I welcome Philip to the stage. It's 1969. I'm standing on a cafeteria table at the Bot Hills Elementary School in Latham, New York, Christmas PTA meeting. A voice over the PA says, and now Philip Pan from Mrs. Cosgrove's third grade class will perform Fiddler on the Roof. I knew that sucked. Worse, I knew everybody in the room thought it sucked too. I need to take a moment to apologize to Beethoven for hijacking the wonderful music from his Fifth Symphony to represent my personal neurosis. <laughs> I didn't really like the violin or violin music at that point in my life. What had happened was that about two months prior, uh, a gentleman with a little bow tie, his arms full of kid-sized violins, showed up at our classroom, and he said, if anyone will sign up for violin lessons with me, I'll give them a violin right now. And I was like, okay, me, me, because I thought dad would be so happy. My father loved the violin, uh, he played very well as an amateur. He and, my excuse me, he and my mother met over a love of music, and they often played together violin and piano at home. So I just thought, how happy will Dad be when I bring home my own violin? Well, despite the um, trauma of my debut performance, I stuck with it. Uh, I worked hard. Uh, by middle school, I was practicing maybe six or seven hours a day. Uh, one summer, I actually moved in with my teacher so I could have lessons every single day for a couple of months. Uh, there was a joke went around my house that I was no good um, at attracting girls my age, but when I played the violin, every woman over 50 swooned. <laughs> well, <clears throat> by 11th grade, still working hard, a great opportunity came my way. I was invited to play a concerto with the Boston Pops Orchestra. Thank you. At Symphony Hall in Boston, and to be recorded by NPR and rebroadcast over all the syndicated stations. So, uh, needless to say, I practiced really hard, was well prepared for this performance. Um, the Boston Pops, of course, marvelous orchestra, also made me feel very welcome and at ease. And the performance itself was going pretty well. Uh, this concerto was in three parts. And the finale uh, is introduced first by the orchestra. That happens exactly 13 times. Then the violin solo comes in. Well, I'm standing there not counting. 
And at about the 15th or 16th, the conductor leans over to me and says, you can come in any time now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I had just up in front of the entire Boston Pops Orchestra, 3,000 people in Boston Symphony Hall, and who knows how many people who would listen to the broadcast on the radio. So, my demons of fear of messing up and the fear of being judged for it were wide awake. And they would be with me for decades, through the rest of high school, through my first year at Boston University, four years at the Juilliard School, uh, festivals like the Aspen Music Festival. And they were with me in 1984 when I came to Jacksonville to become concertmaster of the Jacksonville Symphony. I'm often asked, what's it like to play in a professional symphony orchestra? And my answer is, I imagine it's like being in the military because Individualism, individual thought, creativity are not welcome. What's expected is competent, immediate uh, execution of orders given. And mistakes are not okay. So it's with this mindset I went to work every day. In the 90s, uh, a guest soloist came to our Masterwork series he brought a violin with him, but he was not, per se, a violinist. He was a fiddler, Mark O'Connor, arguably the greatest fiddler of our time. And he brought his own composition, Fiddle Concerto Number no. 1. A just wonderful, delightful uh, amalgamation of Appalachian Americana and a symphonic setting. And we were chatting after the concerts. I told him how much I had really enjoyed his performance. He said, you should come to my fiddle camp. It's a week-long immersion in world violin, mu violin music. There's classical, bluegrass, jazz, zydeco, uh, mariachi, um, klezmer, uh, Chinese folk music, everything violin. You might, you might like it. Well, it took me till 2005 to finally go to fiddle camp. And I think um, the orchestra, the stress of it was sort of wearing on me. I was looking for some kind of relief, some kind of a change. So I arrived at the hotel and in the lobby where everyone was registering, uh, fiddlers and violinists from all over the world were already taking their violins out of their cases, making new friends, and making music right there in the lobby. Over in one corner, a bluegrass circle. In another corner, Irish fiddlers playing jigs and reels. And then from across the room, I heard something familiar. Ooh, I know that. That's George Gershwin. We play George Gershwin. Wow, maybe I can even join in with these guys. So I went over, and this young lady, about 15, uh, was just finishing the melody. And then she sort of leaned into the guitarist and said, let's swing this. 
was stunned. She had just turned this into this swingy, cool, groovy, and she looked like she was making it all up, like no music, just making it up. And I was elated, excited, and then immediately dejected because I couldn't do this. 20 years, professional violinist, no clue. Whole week went that way, every class, amazing new music. Couldn't play a note. Of course, I asked everybody, how'd you learn to do that? How'd you learn to play like that? Lessons, special teacher, special school, you grew up with it. Everybody just told me, no, you just find people who play that music, you join in, you learn as you go. Absolutely terrifying thought to a classically trained violinist. But I went back to Jacksonville determined to somehow dip my toe into this, these new wonderful styles of music. Put the word out. So happened my family doctor's little brother was the drummer in a very popular and successful local band called Fusebox Funk. Fusebox Funk was fronted by Grant Nielsen. Grant Nielsen, our friend, the vegetarian. <laughs> Grant and the band were very kind, invited me to learn a few of their songs and even joined them on stage at some local shows. Their music was so fun, super high energy. And it became an addiction of mine uh, after symphony concert on a Friday or Saturday night to run backstage, pack up, jump in my car, and drive out to a venue like Freebird Live. Remember Freebirds? Rest in peace, Freebirds. <laughs> and I would, you know, still in my tux or my tailcoat, jump on stage, plug in, and jam out with my new friends. And I loved this so much because this was a judgment-free zone. Um, no one cared if you made a mistake. Nobody knew if you made a mistake because all that was important was that you were in the moment, you were part of the energy, you contributed to it, and everybody had a great time. Well, after Fusebox, uh, I joined a progressive metal band called The Architect Sound, and then I had a series of gigs in Atlanta uh, playing with uh, DJ Mike B, who was the leading DJ of the day, and he would spin these mashups of Katy Perry and Lil Wayne, and I would just jam along. Um, and in Jacksonville, I was really, really fortunate uh, to play with some great indie bands. In particular, Canary in the Coal Mine and Grandpa's Cough Medicine presented me the opportunity with playing at the Spirit of the Swanee Music Park. And yes, if you don't already know, the Swanee Music Park is one of the world's great live music venues. Uh, it's beautiful, it attracts the best players in the world. And it's the spirit is just like how I described in the clubs in Jacksonville. Everybody's there famous, not so famous, to share what they have, to appreciate what you have, and it's just a joyful, happy place. No coincidence that I met the love of my life at Swanee, Cheryl. We, uh, we got married there. I proposed to her there on stage singing an Elvis song. And at our wedding, our friends played and sang for us all night long. When I first uh, 
conceived of my fish-out-of-water story, I thought, yeah, perfect. This will be the story of my uncomfortable transition from being uh, you know, a rigid, highly prepared classical player to learning how to loosen up, be in the moment, improvise. As the story developed, I realized that most of my life, I felt out of my water. And where I wanted to be in the pond I wanted to swim in was not defined by any particular style of music. It was defined that the people I was with. And I found people, you know, who are just joyful, open-hearted, and willing to let go of unnecessary fears and worries. In 2017, I retired from the symphony. And at that time, I made the conscious decision that I want to swim in these happy, joyful waters, no matter what kind of music I play. I'm really, really happy to be here. I'm really happy that you are all here, too. Thank you. Grant Nielsen with his guitar. Bro, do you want to make some music? Let's do it. Let's make some music. Okay. What should we play? What should we play? Hmm. Okay. I right, just check. <laughs> right. All right. I know. Let's play this. Yeah, so listen, 
We're at the end of the evening, and um, we're going to call the cast out for bows. And it actually, also, there are storytellers in the audience that this has been a four-part series. Each, each time we had six storytellers. So a bunch of the storytellers are here. So if you're a storyteller from Untold Stories, make your way over to the stage door, okay? Because we're going to have you all come out and take a final bow for the end of this season, okay? <laughs> All right, so without further ado, please, the cast of Fish Out of Water, okay? Come on out. Plus Buddy. <laughs> Antoinette Johnson, Anna NG, Grant, Trisha, Arson, <laughs> Philip, and Michael. What a wonderful evening. And I'll take a bow too. And Jeremy on, on sound. And uh, the Florida Theater has the most amazing staff. Jackie at the door, I love her. Um, and now will all the storytellers come on out that have been throughout the season. We've got families coming out. Come on, come down at this end too. Hope McMath. And now everyone's going this way. <laughs> We're all gravitated to yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> so it has been amazing. Thank you, Numa. Cecilyn, I don't know where Numa is. Numa should be up here. And Jake and Brian Wolfberg, thank you, thank you for believing in the power of stories. Thank you, guys. The live performances of Untold Stories at the Florida Theater were originally recorded by Jeremy Moore and Eric Stansfield. Saul Lucio is the technical director of the Florida Theater. The Untold Stories broadcast and podcast was produced by Brady Corum and Ray Hollister.